You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 13 verses 1 through 8. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, O Father, to be our teacher this morning, to be our guide, to open our hearts, Father, to your word, and to open the truth of your word to our hearts, and to align our hearts, O Father, with this truth. Take us, O Father, and show us the wonder of this passage. Show us the glory of this passage, the beauty of this passage, for it is is immeasurably beautiful. O Father, we pray that, Lord, you would do these things in our hearts, in Jesus' name, amen and amen. Well, we've returned to John. We've taken a little bit of a detour first uh, to take a little time to study prayer, which is always needful, and um, then the the, uh, Christmas season. Of course, we've been in Luke's gospel now for some time, and um, now we've returned back to John's gospel and uh, just as a matter of, of housekeeping, a little bit of review, and really for the first half of this message, I'm just going to be using a couple of the points in, in the beginning of the uh, chapter 13 to kind of take us forcefully through a review to get our minds back into John's gospel because it's been many, many weeks. But um, just as a matter of housekeeping, John's gospel, and it's helpful to, 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 to look at sometimes the structure of, of these books. It's helpful to outline these in our minds, and, and we can do this with John quite simply. You know, John's gospel begins with a, a, an introduction or a prologue, if you will, and I've, oh, I mean, we, we're, we're looking at it all the time. We're going to look at it again this morning, and that's chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. Uh, so you have this prologue, if you will, and then, of course, chapter 21, the very end of John's gospel, is often referred to as an epilogue, which is kind of the end. So you have a prologue, you have an epilogue, and then in between chapters 1, verse 19, uh, through the end of chapter 20, uh, we could think of this section really as two um, sections, if you will. The first section, which would be chapter 1 through to the end of chapter 12, uh, is oftentimes referred to as the book of signs. That's just one way we can think about it because Jesus is doing these signs. You know, the first sign that he does is uh, in Cana at the wedding, transforming the water into wine. And that is the first of his signs. And the last of his signs is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. And interestingly enough, and we're going to look at this a little bit closer, 
The last half, if you will, chapters 13 through the end of chapter 20 is, real, is oftentimes been referred to as the book of the passion, the book of the passion. Because that section, believe it or not, that entire section, those eight chapters there, concern really the few days uh, between Thursday of, um, of um, the week that Jesus is crucified uh, to really Sunday. So we have practically eight chapters concerning those few days. And one of the reasons I want to point it out is, do you think John's emphasizing something here? I think so. Um, that's why it's helpful to stand back and look. Now, for the sake of this morning and this morning's message, I'm going to give you three pegs to hang this message on. They're wonderful pegs. The first one is love, Christ's love. The second one is Christ's sovereignty. And the third one is Christ's humility. So if you think of love, sovereignty, and humility, you'll have three pegs, if you will, to hang this message on. Now, if you look at John 13, verse 1, notice the reference to the Feast of the Passover. We're told before the Feast of the Passover. And in our study earlier, you may recall that John is often making references to these pilgrimage feasts, uh, Passover, Pentecost, uh, boost, if you will, and he's making theological, theological connections with these, and we've studied those as we've gone through John's gospel. But what I want to do here this morning is, okay, we have this reference to the Passover, and we know that this is the last Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry because this is the Passover where Jesus actually will lay his life down as the Passover lamb. He is the one uh, of whom all of those sacrifices uh, point to. So this is his last um, Passover during his earthly ministry. Now, if you will turn with me, I just want to take you through this. If you go back to John chapter 2, and if you look at verses 23, 24, and 25, a number of reasons of turning back here. And we're going to look around in John's gospel a little bit, and this is going to help just get our minds back in uh, John's gospel because it's been many, many weeks. But you'll recall, oh, those passages, yeah, we were very often coming back to these, weren't we? Yes, um, a lot. Um, notice that we're told in verse 23, John chapter 2, verse 23, that when Jesus was in Jerusalem, he there, that is Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, this is the first Passover feast that's made reference in Jesus during Jesus' earthly ministry. So we have first Passover feast. While Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believe in his name. Sounds good, right? Except for when we continue to read. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Uh-oh, something's wrong. We made a lot of references to this. Um, Jesus knew all people, verse 25. He needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. What is he saying there? Jesus doesn't need us to give a profession of faith. He already knows what's in our hearts. In fact, he knows what's in our hearts better than we do. And here we see, and one of the reasons why we were always going back to this verse is because we wanted to point out something that John is pointing out, and that is simply every time the word believe is used in John's gospel is not necessarily describing saving faith, is it? It's important that we understand that. And it's important that we take uh, notice of that. What's that mean? That means that not, um, all, not all professions of faith are saving. A little bit scary, isn't it? Say a little bit scary, this sounds a lot scary. Okay, I agree with you, it's a lot scary. 
Uh, so we want to take uh, heed of that. But here we find the first Passover feast, if you will. Now, if you just thumb through John's Gospel to chapter 5, verse 1, there we see an un- unnamed feast. We're told that there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John doesn't name which one it is. It is possible, though we can't say for sure, but it is possible that this is a Passover feast. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, People speculate on it, but at the end of the day, I don't think we can know. We just don't know. We can't be sure. But it's possible that it's a Passover feast. Now, why is it not mentioned? Some have suggested it's not mentioned because in this particular context, John is not making a theological reference to any feast. That sounds like a good logical explanation. It's somewhat speculative. Take it or leave it. Um, But turn to chapter 6, verse 4. There we have a Passover feast mentioned. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. This leaves us in no doubt that we have another either a second Passover feast or a third Passover feast, right? So it's possibly three. It's definitely two. Definitely two, possibly three. Now, when you come to John chapter 13, here we have another Passover feast. Now, that is no less than three, possibly four. Now, why are we doing this? One is just to review and get back into the gospel. But secondly, I want to see that here we can ascertain from these things that a, an approximate time frame of the duration of Jesus' earthly ministry. And I've read, I've got some commentaries in my office that go to do this, and it never amazes me how complicated uh, academics can make simple things. Um, you try to follow their, and my goodness, um, the simplest way to do this <laughs> is to say, okay, here we are in in John 13. We know. What do we know here? We know this is the final Passover, right? Let's make that our starting point, and let's go backwards. Okay? From this point back to chapter 6 is one year, right? There's a reference to a Passover indisputable. So we have one year. Now, if we go back... For, for on the minimum, if we go back from there to chapter 2, we have a second year. There's approximately six months of ministry leading up to that first Passover. So that would make, at a minimum, Jesus' earthly ministry is two and a half years in length. That's a minimum. Now, if we give that chapter 5 is indeed making reference to a Passover feast, we have no way of knowing that for sure, at least now, presently, with the light we have. But if that is a Passover feast, then we had one year. So Jesus' earthly ministry is somewhere between two and a half and three and a half years in length. Now, that's going to come up. I'm going to develop that just a little bit here in a few minutes. But notice there's something else in verse 1. We're told that before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew his hour had come. You remember that hour? Yeah, I remember that hour business. Um, let's take a quick look at that, this hour stuff, uh, if you will. If you go back to chapter 2, back to the feast in, or the wedding in Cana, it's helpful to do this. Now, what's going on here is there's a wedding underway. They run out of, um, they run out of wine, and Jesus... Um, Mother comes to him and says, listen, they have no wine. Now, notice what Jesus says in verse 4. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? 
my hour has not yet come. Right? Now you go to chapter 7. When you're reading this for the first time, this can puzzle you, or can at least you can say, you know, I think the author here is trying to alarm me to something. In chapter 7, you remember the story where Jesus' brothers are trying to encourage Jesus to go to the, the uh, Feast of Booths. Feast of Booths is the hand. They said, listen, you need to go down and make a big fanfare. I mean, this will be really great for your ministerial career. And of course, Jesus says, no, um, I'm not going to do it. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, my time has not yet come. My time has not yet come. And in verse 8, he says, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast for my time has not yet fully come. This is about six months before John 13. It's about six months earlier. And Jesus is saying, listen, my time has not come. And it's a little puzzling because he does turn around and go, doesn't he? And you say, wait a second. Jesus says he's not going to come, then he turns around and goes. Well, what he means is he's not going to go in publicly like his brothers are suggesting. He does go, and look what happens. He, he ends up teaching, and look at verse 30. As a result, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him because what? His hour had not yet come. Now, things are hot at this point. They really become quite heated back in chapter 5, especially in verse 18. We're told explicitly they're seeking to kill him. They're seeking to destroy him. Uh, but his hour had not yet come. And when you go to chapter 8... And verse 20, notice this. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. And one of the last things we looked at before we stopped our study of John's gospel was chapter 12, verse 23, where um, for sake of context, if you look at verse 20, um, there's some Greeks who went up to worship at the feast. Now, the Passover feast is at hand. And these Greeks show up, and they come to Philip, who was, with, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we want to see Jesus. And Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip both go and tell Jesus. Now, look what Jesus says in verse 23. He says, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. The hour is at hand. The hour is now here, and we see this, be, we're being reminded of this in chapter 13, verse 1. Jesus knew his hour had come. His hour had come what? To depart out of this world to the Father. Now, notice the next thing that we're told, having loved. That's where I'm getting the first head, the first, the first point, if you will, the first peg in our mind. Remember, I asked you to put love there. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. A lot of times we think of the cross, and it, we're right to think of the cross where Jesus displays his love. But here's another place where we're going to see Jesus is displaying incredible love uh, to those whom he has come to save. And John is informing us of this. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Now, in verse 2, we're told that during supper... And we're given this first. This verse will raise your eyebrow when you read this. You know, you can read this five or six times and still say, wow, this is a peculiar verse. Notice what is said there. When, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. Have you ever pondered over that? Have you ever looked at that and said, what exactly is going on here? The devil put it into 
uh, Judah's heart. Now, someone might read this and say, wait a second, now, is, is Judas still responsible here? I mean, does the devil just put things in your heart? Does the devil just put things there? Is Judas responsible? Obviously, we know that Judas uh, is responsible here. There's no question uh, that Judas is responsible. Uh, one of the things that, and I, I wrote it out in my notes here so that I would get it right. I didn't trust my memory. But listen to these words. I wrote this out carefully. A heart that follows Satan is a heart that desires the same. Do you understand what I mean? I'll repeat it. A heart that follows Satan is a heart that desires the same. Now see, in our, it doesn't mean, I'm not trying to imply that, that we would follow Satan in every direction that he goes. But I am implying that we do follow Satan in some of the directions that he goes in our fallen nature, do we not? In our fallenness, why do we sin? It's because we want to. Actually, it's because we love to. That's why. And because we're enslaved to that. Now, to help us understand verse 2, we've already been given a fact about Judas that's going to help us understand verse 2. And that fact comes out at the beginning of chapter 12. Now, in the beginning of chapter 12, if you look there, we're told there it's six days before Passover, roughly, no, not quite a week earlier. And Jesus comes to Bethany and a dinner is given for him there. Why? Because Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead, right? And his sisters, you can see his sisters are throwing a dinner for him. I mean, why not? This is a joyous occasion and Jesus is there and Lazarus is there. And Mary, who is one of Lazarus' sisters, she takes a pound of this expensive ointment from pure nard, and she anoints the feet of Jesus and wipes his feet with her hair. And this is met with a strong objection in verse 4 by Judas Iscariot. And he says in verse 5, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? In other words, why are you wasting all this money? And when we were studying this passage, we, we talked about how expensive this wine is. Obviously, Mary and, and Lazarus and Martha are people of means to be able to even have this very expensive perfume. And Judas is objecting. Why are you wasting this perfume? In his mind, this is a waste. But verse 6 tells us something about his heart. He didn't object because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. That's pretty scary. I find this to be really scary because, I don't know, maybe a year and a half, two years ago, I overheard a person who was talking. It wasn't even eavesdropping. They were just in the, they, I wasn't very far away from them. They were having a conversation. It wasn't a private conversation. They were just having a conversation with a few others. And I've been reaching out to this person and reaching out to this person and reaching out to this person. And they've been kind of mentally assenting, at least to, the best I can tell, they're mentally assenting to the truths of the gospel and starting, starting to, 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 to say yes and yes and yes. But then money came up, and it came up that such and such was making 400 and some thousand a year. And I heard them respond to that and how much they would love to be able to make that kind of money. And when I heard the passion in their voice, it sent a shrill down my spine for this very reason that we're here right now. It sent a shrill down my spine because I thought to myself, 
there's where your God is. And that is the case with so many people in our culture, not just our culture, but around the world, isn't it? Our God is our pocketbook. Our God is money. Our God is money. And that's the case with Judas, isn't it? He's stealing the Sunday school money, isn't he? I mean, there's a lot of thieves that wouldn't do that. I mean, we'll we'll break into someone's house down the road, but we're not going to break into the church. We're not going to do this. Well, he's routinely helping himself with the Sunday school money, and this gives Satan a point of contact, doesn't it? It gives him a point of temptation, and that helps us understand what's going on in verse 2. During supper, when the devil had already put it into his heart, in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son to betray him. Here's this point. Here's his God. Satan knows who his God is. He's observed him. He knows who his God is. He'll sell Jesus out. What's the big deal? You could get 30 pieces of silver. You can see this ministry here is not getting you anywhere. You can hear that voice being whispered in the ear, can you not? But I think what John wants us for sure, what John wants us to see here is that behind Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus is satanic activity, isn't it? It's satanic activity that's behind Judas' activity. Now, that brings us to verse 3. In verse 3, we we have an absolute amazing verse here before us. We're told that Jesus, and we're, we're, what I say about this is we're giving, we're giving insight into the very heart of Jesus. We're giving insight into the very thoughts of Jesus here. If you look at verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and he was going back to God. Three things are said there, isn't there? Three things are being said there. First, the Father had, he knew the Father had given all things into his hand. Let's set that aside. We'll talk about that in a moment. But secondly, he knew that he had come from God. Thirdly, he knew he was going back to God. And this has led some to say, listen, we don't have just one prologue in John's gospel. We have two prologues in John's gospel. We have a prologue for the first half of John's gospel in chapter 1, verse 1 through 18. And we have another prologue to the second half of John's gospel right here, chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And some will say, well, how do you suppose? Think of the parallel here. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And look at verse 3. Jesus knew, he's knowing, that he come from God and that he is going back to God. Do you see the parallel there? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Jesus knowing that he had come from God and was going back to God. Let me do it again, and let's add verse 14 in. John chapter 1, verse 14. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. So he was with God, and he comes from God. And John chapter 13, verse 3, Jesus knowing he had come from God, the Word became flesh, right? and dwelt among us, and he is going back to God. You see the connection I'm trying to make there? But the first part of this is what I really want to develop. When you read the words, okay, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, what do you suppose that's teaching? 
If someone says, listen, God has given all things into my hands, what kind of statement would that be? What is the person saying? You know, I went in and asked Tammy yesterday afternoon. I went and asked Tammy. I said, listen, if someone said, all things have been given into my hands, what do you suppose they'd be saying? And she'd be saying, well, that person would be claiming absolute authority. She's a bright one, isn't she? She said that like in two seconds. She said it immediately. Don't, don't underestimate my wife. She is very, I can tell you right now, she is very sharp. She's very humble. She's very sharp. Immediately, she goes, well, they'd be saying that's, uh, uh, that's absolute authority. I said, yeah, it's the statement that Jesus, Jesus knows this in his heart. He knows this in verse 3 of chapter 13. He knows that all things have been given to him. In other words, this is a statement of absolute authority. And it's not the first time this has come up. If you look at John chapter 3, verse 35, all the way back in John chapter 3, and while you're turning there, I'll just, for sake of, of context, John the Baptist, you know, he, uh, he, he, is, he is saying, um, um, talking about how he must decrease, you know, his ministry is underway approximately six months ahead of Jesus. Now Jesus is on the scene, and he's saying, I must decrease in verse 30, but he who comes from above is above all. Um, he who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what, has, what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. And look what is said in verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Now, there's a lot of people right now that would love that to be said about them, especially as there's this, there's really a global, we're in the midst of a transition, a global transition, where a select few are jockeying for world domination. That's what's going on. I don't want to sound like some kind of QAnon nutcase here. Um, that is what's happening. That's very clearly what's happening. And they would love for it to have been said about any one of them that all things have been given into their hand, but it is being said here of Jesus. Look at verse 36. I use verse 36 in evangelism all the time. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. We'll get that, right? And what you expect the second line to say is, whoever does not believe the Son shall not see life, but that isn't what's said in that second line, is it? And I like to point this out all the time whenever I get opportunities. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, Whoever does not obey, you're not ready for obey, are you? You almost, if you're not careful, you'll read believe in the second line. Have you ever done that? Read a word that you thought was there, only to discover it's not there? You can do that in verse 36 quite easily, but it's not the word believe in that second line, is it? It's the word obey. The application of this, there's lots of people right now who are, who are, who are, are claiming to believe in Jesus yet they're nowhere to be found in the active ministry of Jesus. They're nowhere to be found in active church life. In fact, they're nowhere to be found in a worship service anywhere, yet they claim to believe in Jesus. Listen, I want to say this, and we need to say this to folks. Their profession is on thin ice. So how can you say such a thing? Verse 36, because they're clearly disobedient to Jesus. Because they're not, Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. 
And how can I be said to be with Jesus if I'm not taking up my cross, denying myself, and following him? How can I be said, how can be said that I'm with him? So in all likelihood, their profession of faith looks like John chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. It's quite frightening, isn't it? So hopefully someone will hear these words and say, you know what? I need to repent. I need to repent. But back to verse 35, the father loves his son, has given all things into his hand. That's a, that's a statement of absolute authority. I want to make application of that here in a moment. But before we do, look with me to chapter 5 and verse 22. And I'm, I'm taking us through all this because this is going to get our minds back in John's gospel. It's been many weeks. In John chapter 5, verse 22, Jesus says, The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. That's a position of high authority, isn't it? It even gets better. That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. What do you mean, just as you honor the Father? A little less than you honor the Father? It's subordinationism. No. They love Him as they love the Father. It's on an equal plane. What is He saying here? What is He saying here? Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes me, him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you. Remember that phrase I kept pointing out? Truly, truly, I say to you. Amen, amen is the Greek. Amen, amen is what he's saying. Truly, truly. Amen means truly as well as uh, conclusion, if you will, or agreement, if you will. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. He has so much authority. He has authority over the dead. He can speak to the dead and they will hear him. And those who hear will live, for as the Father has life in himself, so has uh, granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Jesus could go to a cemetery and speak, and they will hear his voice. That's powerful, isn't it? John chapter 17. John chapter 17, verse 2. Jesus, you know, it's, this, this is the end of what we call the upper room discourse, which we're beginning to study, the upper room discourse. And Jesus lists what we call his high priestly prayer. Many of you will have a subheading there, something to the tune of the high priestly prayer of Jesus or the high priestly prayer. And in verse 17, Jesus, when Jesus had spoken these words, what words? The words that are given in the upper room. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. There we are with that hour again. The hour has come. Jesus is only hours, by the way, of going to the cross. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the Son may glorify you since you have given him what? Authority over all flesh. Now, of course, this is, uh, we, can, we can add to this uh, Psalm 2. Psalm 2, you can keep your place there. You can turn to Psalm 2. And Psalm 2 is one to focus on often because of the typical hour that we're in right now. Psalm 2 can bring you so much comfort as you watch the news. There in the first half, we see the nations raging and the peoples plotting in vain and rulers setting themselves against the Lord 
persecuting his church, if you will, saying, let us burst their bonds apart. In other words, let's get rid of Jesus. Let's get rid of all vestiges of Christianity. And in verse 4, he who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. And then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Uh, Verse 6, as for me, God says, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Who is this king? Verse 7, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. It's no, it's Christ Jesus, isn't it? He is the king. Ask of me, verse 8, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Look how strong this language is. And some will say, well, that's Old Testament stuff, you know. Oh, that's just Old Testament stuff. What about the book of Revelation? Is that Old Testament stuff? What about Matthew 23? Is that Old Testament stuff? Those who, are, who have fabricated an effeminate Jesus in their hearts and in their minds don't have room for this because they're, they're worshiping a false Jesus. He's not the Jesus who is offered to us in the gospel. The Jesus who's being offered to us in the gospel is a king who can go into a seminary and speak to the dead. And they will listen to him. Yet stubborn human beings won't for a period of time. You feeling the gravity of this? I mean, the fool says in his heart there's no God, and there's a lot of fools right now Trying, uh, vying for this world domination, exploiting COVID. They're exploiting this Omicron uh, variant right now, which I understand, and I understand. I heard Ben Carson, who I think knows a little bit about medicine, says this is a cold. And I keep telling Tammy, every time they go on about the Omicron, I say, the sniffles are coming, the sniffles are coming. The sniffles are coming. What's that all about? The fool says in his heart there's no God. You know, a lot of people are really being hurt over this. While some are making a whole bunch of money. Now, that might warm me up as to what this is really about. Because really, if they were worried about saving people, they would have always put more effort into therapeutics. What do you do? What do you do for Rodney Ann? What do you do for Rodney Ann? I'm not a doctor. That's not my area. But I listen to them. I listen to doctors. I listen to what they're saying. Very few of them are saying these things. I'm thankful that some of them are. At any rate, back to John 13, verse 3. Here we have this amazing statement of absolute authority. And what are you expecting to happen next? After this amazing statement of absolute authority, aren't you expecting Jesus to make, wouldn't wouldn't this be a good place to put in the transfiguration? I mean, wouldn't this be a great place for Jesus to be now transfigured to where you see his glory and there you see Moses and you see Elijah and Peter jumps up and says, oh man, it's great that you're all here and uh, let's build booths and let's, wouldn't it be great for something? I mean, couldn't you see the scene? What happens? Jesus rises from supper 
He laid aside his outer garments. He takes a tile. He ties it around his waist. He pours water into a basin and he begins to wash the disciples' feet to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. What in the world is he doing? What is he doing? Our culture is so radically different from this culture, but I think we can get the gist of it. If you lived in this culture, you didn't have a shower in your house. Your bath would be much like what we would call today a sponge bath. Now, you could get cleaned up to go someplace, but it's hot, arid climate, it's dusty, and you're wearing sandals. What are your feet going to look like when you get to where you're going? It's not like you can't just kick off your shoes and walk in. You're going to walk in with these feet, and they're going to be a mess. And because of that, there was a task, but this task was only reserved for the very lowest of servants. In fact, most generally speaking, it was slaves that did this. In fact, if you turn back to John chapter 1, I want you to see this connection. This task is so low that John uses it when he's trying to think of an illustration to show the great chasm between him and Jesus. In verse 19, we find that the Jews sent priests and Levites to John to ask him who he is. And John says, I'm not the Christ in verse 20. And they say, well, then who are you? You Elijah? You the prophet? He said, no. Then they say, well, who are you? Verse 22. And we need to give an answer to those who sent us. John says in verse 23, I am the voice of one crying out on the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. And they asked him, why then are you baptizing, verse 25, if you're neither the Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? Verse 26, John says, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am unworthy to untie. What is John making a reference to there? He is reaching for something that is so low that he can use as an illustration to show how much lower he is than the Christ. And he points to this idea of taking someone's sandals off and washing their feet. And in this culture, that would get it done. Because this was a task that was designated for only the lowliest of servants. Only the lowliest of servants could be asked to do this. Now, when we go back to John 13, verse 4, what do we find Jesus doing? On the heels of this great announcement of his sovereignty, of his absolute authority, what does he do? He strips his outer garments off. He wraps a towel around his waist. He grabs a basin, pours water into the basin, and he proceeds to wash their feet. Can you, un, can, you, can you imagine the tension in the room that's elevating here? Peter, who thinks out loud, says in verse 6, he says to him, Lord, you wash my feet. Jesus says in verse 7, well, what I'm doing, you don't understand now, but afterward, you will understand. And Peter says, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. What in the world is going on here? We've had love, right? We've had sovereignty. Now what we have is humility. What's going on here is the holy sovereign is stooping down to personally cleanse the filthy. 
What do you say next after that? Philippians 2, that's what you say. Just quickly, and I'll close. But keep your place in John 13, because Paul, the Bible is its best interpreter. In Philippians chapter 2, we've been looking at this passage, as of late. Do you notice in verse 5, as Paul is offering outstanding, inspired commentary on the event that's taking place in John 13. Paul says, have this mind among yourselves. See, our change begins with the mind. Let's get our minds in order here. Get your mind wrapped around this. That Jesus Christ, verse 6, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Now, when you read those words, you think you read those words and you think about John 13, what is Jesus doing? He is God in the flesh in possession of absolute authority on an equal footing with the Father. You're to honor me just as your other father is what Jesus said, right? And he takes off his garment, his outer garment, because this is how a slave would be dressed. And he wraps the towel around his waist because this is how a slave would be dressed. And he pours water into a basin because this is what a slave would do. And he proceeds to wash the filth off of the feet of his disciples. The holy sovereign stoops down to personally cleanse his people. And what is this pointing towards? It's quite easy to see at this point what this is pointing towards. It's pointing to, you don't understand now, but you're going to understand. You don't understand yet, but here soon you're going to understand. In fact, in less than 24 hours, you're going to be quite perplexed. But in a short period of time, you're going to understand that what I'm pointing to now with my humility, taking off my garment and stooping down to cleanse you is pointing towards the cross. That's the point of this. It's pointing to the cross where Jesus will do more than take off his outer garment. He'll hang there naked, won't he? And base humiliation, he will hang on the cross for the express purpose of stooping down to cleanse the filthy with his own death. And that's why Jesus can say to Peter, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. And of course, we... Having made application to the first audience, we can now from there make application to ourselves, and the application is clear, isn't it? Just as I pointed to the Apostles' Creed and all those saints from 700 and on, we could even go back. It's probably originating probably from the second century in some form. All of these saints that have looked to these words, looked to the promises of God, put their faith and their trust in Christ, guess what? He cleansed them regardless of what they endured in their life, and many of them endured terrible, terrible things, they've been with Jesus for all these centuries in paradise, haven't they? The application is easy, isn't it? How about us in our own chapter? As things start to get rough for us, as it's probably going to. Maybe we'll take a turn, and maybe we won't. But you know one thing I'm thankful for is this is rattling our cage. 
I know it's been rattling my cage. I've been studying like crazy. Every minute that I have, I've been studying like crazy to try to answer questions I never thought I would even hear, to try to answer some of the questions that are coming our way right now in the midst of this time about vaccines and about uh, vaccine mandates and about this and about that and about this. Who would have ever seen this coming 10 years ago? Who would ever think we're here? This is comforting, isn't it? This is the answer. This is the response. Think about verse 3 again, and we'll close. Jesus, knowing that all things, the Father has given all things into his hand. Todas las cosas is how you say that in Spanish. All things. Todas las cosas. That's what I would say if I was in the jockey's room right now. Todas las cosas. All things have been given into his hands. Amen? And that holy sovereign stooped down to cleanse each one of us. He didn't designate someone else to do it. He did it himself. Heavenly Father, we so thank you, Lord, that you have stooped down. And a moment will come to the table where, Father, we see this, this same message, O oh, Father, proclaimed before our very eyes in sense of touch and taste. Oh, Father, you, you have sent Jesus, who is God in the flesh, to cleanse us of our filth. Oh, Father, we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.